Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It is our first program in August. Hey, I'm going to whisper this because Paula probably wouldn't want me to tell you, but it's also Paula's birthday today and all day yesterday, all day yesterday, people would say, how old are you? And I would say, she's 69. And they would say, I can't believe you're 69. And then I would say, well, I just turned 70. Not one person said, I can't believe you're 70. That's just the way it goes. Paula, I know you're listening. Happy birthday. I love you, and I will see you soon. Uh, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything and everything that's on your heart. Uh, All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com, where you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And it's wet outside, so be careful. The safest way to call if you're driving is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else is hands-free, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, there's a lot going on here. And by the way, I also want to say happy birthday to Becky Coronado. I don't know if she's listening to the show. don't even know if she does normally. But her and Paula share a birthday. And Becky, I pray for you all the time. Um, tonight, Monday night, is our next to the last Sweet Summer Devotion. Tonight, Sarah Doyle will be sharing her heart. That's at 7 o'clock. Our men's studies and our youth studies, junior high and high school, are at the same time. So you can bring the family and make it uh, a family affair. Uh, 7 o'clock, if you can't get here, you can watch it at calvarysa.com and get the live stream. Uh, But remember, especially for the ladies, being here in person is much better because we we do not record or live stream the question and answer um, reflection time after uh, the the speaker. And there's always a lot of ministry of the Spirit. God moves. So uh, that is all tonight at 7 o'clock. Okay, let me get to some questions that have been sent in, and uh, we await your phone calls. Uh, this was a question, actually, that was passed on to me by uh, Louis Henier, who is who uh, runs our foundations class. So this is a question uh, that he said he would pass on to me from somebody in the class. Foundations, by the way, is sort of for new believers or just some who don't feel like they're very grounded in their faith. And we go over uh, week by week the basics. It's a small study, lots of questions, answers. Uh, and so it's, it's a good time. Uh, this question is, I have a question kind of floating around in my mind. How do we know what our spiritual gifts are? My mom once told me that often our gifts don't feel much like gifts at all. And what she meant was that our gifts often seem more like natural ability, not something we work at, but something 
but just something that happens. For example, like Pastor Ron said about reading God's Word and how he just got it. Uh, He didn't work hard at it, but it was something given to him. Um, But if that is the case, how can we know our gifting without becoming proud and thinking more highly of ourselves than we should? A couple of things here, and I don't know who the question was uh, from, but a couple of things. Um, One of the things that that we need to understand is that that especially, um, um, I, I, I actually spoke about this in the last couple of weeks, maybe even yesterday, about the gift of teaching that I've been given um, uh, when I opened the Bible, uh, I, I told the church, I, I just got it. I mean, it wasn't like I, I knew all the mysteries of Christianity, but I got it. I knew that, well, if it said this, and I had to make this change in my life. And, and Paul and I really began to grow together in that process. But I don't want anybody to think that I didn't work hard at it. I got the, I got it. I mean, that's the gift that was given to me. But one of the things that we have to do with the gift that God has given us is we've got to work hard at it. The Apostle Paul talked about his hard work in the Lord, uh, about how he was spent and willing to be spent even more. So um, the idea that we don't need to work uh, using our spiritual gifts, especially in this gift of discernment or the gift of teaching, of course we've got to work at it. We've got to open the Bible. We've got to be connected to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit will, will then give us sort of a direction in our walk with the Lord. So it's important that you understand we have to work at these things. We've got to practice discipline. Uh, We've got to exercise self-control. It means we've got to say no sometimes to the things that our flesh wants to do in order to be able to say, okay, Jesus, I want to learn more about you. So please don't misunderstand. Uh, We really do need to work hard at improving our gifts. And we do that in the Word. We do that in prayer. We do that by spending time with Jesus. Now, your mom is right. Often, our gifts don't feel much like gifts because we've had them for a very long time. Um, but but that gift still requires a lot of work. Um, I, I always think of Pastor Lane and Jocelyn. Um, you know, they, they have the gift of music. They have the gift of singing. Uh, Jocelyn opens her mouth and this voice comes out. It can only be from heaven. That was a gift given to her by God. But believe me, I don't think anybody really understands how hard they work at it. Um, one, they've got to make sure their heart is right with God. Uh, that would that would be pride if they didn't. Uh, that would enable them to think more highly of themselves. But believe me, I think people with gifts like that truly understand that, that if, if they're not humble, if they're not submitted to the Lord, if they're not working hard, then they're taking for granted that which God has given them. So if you'd asked Elaine and Jocelyn before they got saved, I mean, they could do music their whole lives. If you asked them before they got saved, is that a gift from God? They would probably have said, no, I work hard for this. But um, the truth is now they know. And so what seemed like a natural ability is a gift given by God that needs to be nurtured and developed. And again, our hearts have to be checked continuously to make sure that we're using those gifts for the glory of God. Additionally, and I think this is a really important thing to remember, spiritual gifts are not natural gifts in the sense that um, we can do these things and so it just comes easy to us. Um, We're talking supernatural gifts. It goes beyond our ability. And we've got to be faithful with the gifts that we're we're given. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says that every Christian has spiritual gifts. At least one. Uh, My position has always been that if God gives you one gift, it's sort of a tryout. And if you're faithful with that gift, then God will give you more. Because I've, I've experienced people that have multiple gifts regularly. And it's always because they're faithful with the gift that they've had. But here's the other thing to consider here. Um, When God has given you a gift, when he's given you a gift, you can't help but to be humble. To be proud because God gave you something and you had nothing to do with it other than hard work. Well, that's a disconnect from being in the presence of the Lord. So I think 
and I, I mentioned this in our, I think we did five studies in the gifts of the Spirit in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. All those gifts need to be accompanied with humility. And humility comes when we're in the presence of the Lord. So use your gift. If you don't know what your gift is, serve. Just ask your pastors, ask ministry leaders at church. Ask them, how can I help? What help do you need? And then you commit to giving them help. And as you're faithful with that, God is going to reveal to you what your spiritual gifts really are. I hope that makes sense. Thank you very, very much, uh, Louie and Annette, for passing that on. Danny says, when a woman is in an abusive relationship, isn't it better for her to choose divorce, even though God hates divorce? Um, Danny, God doesn't want any woman in an abusive relationship, period. Now, I'm talking about physical abuse. If somebody's being physically abused, they need to get out of that relationship now, not later. They need not to worry about God hates divorce. What God really hates is that a man would take advantage of a woman in that way. So that's really important. So yes, it's better for her to choose divorce. And God understands God would not want any woman putting herself in danger with an abusive, aggressive man. That's very important for us to understand. Now, let me expand a little bit on an abusive relationship. Hurts me to say this, but men sometimes, oftentimes, are jerks. And we misrepresent the Lord in our relationships. We speak unkindly. We manipulate the women in our lives. We try to control them. That is abuse, but it, that kind of abuse is not grounds for divorce. So I want that to be clear. But any woman in a physically abusive relationship needs to get out now. I mean, right now. Not hoping he'll get better, not praying for him, uh, not dragging him to church, but, but get out now. And Danny, it's really important if, if you're talking about someone you know, um, then, then use whatever influence you have to make sure that she's in a safe place. Our church, uh, Danny, has uh, a ministry for women in dangerous situations, um, uh, a house for them to stay in where they will be safe, uh, a house where they can be um, supervised, mentored by uh, mature Christian women who understand uh, the situation that they're coming from. And um, and we we don't want him in danger, not for one more minute. No does nor does God. So yes, God hates divorce. He does, but he also hates women being abused. He hates men being jerks. Um, there's a million reasons why marriages often end in divorce. Some of them are good ones. So Danny, I hope that makes sense to you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Love to get the week started off uh, with your phone calls. Marvin asks, Pastor Ron, why did Jesus curse the fig tree? Um, Marvin, I, I actually get asked this question quite a bit on the program over the years. Um, Jesus was giving uh, a sermon illustration. Um, the, the, the previous day, everything in Jerusalem uh, was misrepresenting God, the people shouting Hosanna, um, the, the religious leaders dressed in their long flowing robes looking all religious and pious, um, uh, the, the, the money changers tables uh, being turned over because the, they were taking advantage of the poor. The gospel was supposed to be good news for the poor. And um, the next morning as they were turning back to Jerusalem from Bethany, he's hungry, it's breakfast time. And he sees a fig tree in leaf. Normally, when a fig tree is in leaf, there's going to be figs. He reached in, tried to find a fig, and there wasn't any. And Jesus was thinking. I'll give you his thought process. He said, this is just more of what I saw yesterday. The fig tree looked like a dead fruit, but it didn't. I went into Jerusalem yesterday hoping to find fruit, and there was no fruit. And so he cursed the fig tree as a sermon illustration to his disciples, saying, this is what happens when there's no fruit, 
coming from somebody's life. And he wasn't angry. Uh, Jesus wasn't throwing a fit. Marvin, he was simply showing his disciples, this is what happens when there's no fruit coming from people's lives. Marvin, thank you very much. We got a, an anonymous call on line one. Thanks for holding. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron, and happy birthday to Paula. Um, <laughs> you, you started off with uh, gifts, and then you just wound up with curse, and that's kind of what I was calling about is uh, can, uh, can one of your gifts be a a curse in a way. I mean, it seems like maybe one of my gifts is I can irritate people no end without <laughs> even trying. And uh, I'll just listen on the radio. Thank you, Anonymous. Uh, you know, um, uh, we, all, we all have things that we can do. Um, and uh, Anonymous, the, the gift of irritating people it's not a gift from God at all. Um, that's the provocation of the enemy of our souls. That's, that's really important to understand. What we have to understand is that with the Holy Spirit living in us, we have the ability to control those impulses that you would consider a curse. Uh, I think we have to work hard at not... If, if, if we have a gift for... Uh, irritating people, uh, we have to work hard at making sure we can turn that gift to, to God for His glory rather than letting our flesh or the enemy of our souls control the use of that gift. And you have, we all have, the ability to control those carnal impulses. All we have to do is match the ability that God has given us, the power that, that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. All we have to do is be able to manage those impulses um, because we want to please the Lord. I want to control them because I want to rightly represent Jesus. I don't want to misrepresent him. I think sometimes... We get so caught up in, well, this is just the way I am. Um, we, 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 we find ourselves in, the, in a pattern of, of, of being unkind to people. And I'll just tell you, there's never an excuse for that. That's sin. It's flesh. And, uh, and Jesus isn't pleased. So here's what we do. We say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Make me more like you. Holy Spirit, whenever I start to irritate people or cause difficulty... Whenever I'm unkind, then please reveal it to me instantly so that I never misrepresent you again. And I think for Christians, we need to be sure that we are not misrepresenting the Lord. And when you get to do that, what you're going to see is the fruit of the Spirit um, exercising the the, the fruit of self-control. You're going to see the rewards that come from that. And Jesus is basically going to say, I'm proud of you. I know this is not easy for you. I know it doesn't come natural. But you denied yourself and you did it for me. Jesus said, if you find your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it for him, you'll find it. And Anonymous, I don't think a lot of Christians have enough faith to really believe that. I've lived it. I was a jerk. That's who I am apart from Christ. I can be a jerk again if I let my flesh be in control. And I have found that Jesus was telling me the truth over and over and over. I lost my life for his sake. And now I love the life that I live. I love the people that I get to share it with. I, uh, my heart has been completely transformed. And, and I think Jesus is pleased and he would be equally pleased with you. Thank you for the question. I appreciate the phone call. Here is a question from our email inbox from Kirby. Uh, in context of 1 Corinthians 7, as Paul talks about being in the place God has called them to be, this is verses 17 to 24, did Paul mean to not be a literal slave or did he mean not to be a spiritual slave to humans in verse 23. What does he mean specifically? Um, let me read just the last couple of verses of that section. I'll start with verse 21. Uh, Paul writes, When you were a slave, oh, I'm sorry, were you a slave when you were called? 
Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who is a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. This is a very specific direction for for uh, people that were getting saved. In the ancient world, um, slaves outnumbered free men four to one. Uh, now we're talking about slaves of the Roman Empire. Um, if they weren't Roman citizens, they could be slaves. And there was a, a hundred reasons why they'd be sold or born into slavery. It could be financial just debts. Uh, it could be that, that somebody couldn't survive uh, on their own, and they would willingly choose to go into slavery. But when they did, it was a, an irrevocable decision. Uh, and Paul is writing to men who are finding freedom in Christ. Now, I want you to think about this. If you've been a slave your whole adult life, and this is not a black-white issue at all. This has nothing to do with with slavery uh, that has plagued our past here in the United States and in other parts of the world. This was simply um, somebody who was born into slavery, somebody who sold themselves into slavery uh, for debts, whatever the reason. Um, um, then they would hear this message about freedom in Jesus Christ, and you can imagine how that would resonate in their hearts. And these men were getting, men and women were getting saved. And they would hear about freedom. God wants you to be free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. All those things that we read in our New Testament, and naturally they'd want to be free. The reality was that they didn't have the legal right to become free. And so Paul is simply saying, if you were a slave when you were called by God, be a good slave. Be a slave for Jesus. And then the, the juxtaposition here is, is that uh, uh, each person uh, is a slave. We're slaves to sin or we're slaves to righteousness or slaves of people or we're slaves of God. And what he's telling the Christians is be a slave for Jesus Christ, knowing that he's the one who rewards you when you get to heaven. You know, the one thing that we want to always be aware of is that our responsibility on earth, regardless of our circumstance, regardless of the station we're in, our responsibility on earth is to rightly represent Jesus so that we would win others through the attractiveness of our relationship with God. So here's what he's saying. He said, look, if you're a slave, be a good one. There's a, a, a precious little one-chapter book in our Bibles, Philemon, and uh, it, it tells the story of a man uh, named Onesimus who was a runaway slave. Um, he heard Paul proclaim this message of freedom. He gave his heart to Jesus Christ. He demonstrated faithfulness and obedience. He was gifted uh, supernaturally by God. He became a very important figure uh, in the early church. He was a big help to the apostle Paul. Remember, Paul was in jail and, and Philemon, or Philemon, the pastor in Colossae, um, 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 he was the previous owner of Onesimus. Well, Onesimus ran away. Philemon got saved earlier. Now Onesimus gets saved. And this is just God sort of working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And in this particular case, when he was going back, the Spirit of God convicted him. you got to go get right with Philemon. And, and Paul, when he was hearing the story, he would say, Philemon, let me write him a letter because Philemon, like you, owes his life to my ministry. And um, Onesimus, of course, everything turned out well. He actually turned out to be a bishop in the early church in the region around Ephesus and, uh, and, and was marvelously, wonderfully used by God. He was somebody, uh, Kirby, who understood uh, the meaning of this passage uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So this is not so much about... Um, um, slaves, spiritual slaves, humans. This is people that were really, truly slaves. And uh, that's the law. That's the way it was in Rome. You know, it's interesting. The Apostle Paul who wrote this uh, was born into Roman citizenry. 
Uh, his father was either rich or well-educated or both. Um, uh, it, it cost a fortune for a, a non-Roman to become a Roman citizen, and he could afford it. That means that Paul, as Saul of Tarsus, was born into Roman citizenry, and Paul would, of course, be able to use that to his benefit a couple of times in his ministry for the Lord. So remember, we're slaves to something. We're slaves to someone. And we get to choose to sin or to righteousness. That ought to be an easy choice. Are we a slave to people or to Jesus? And we get to make the choice. We get to reap the benefits of that choice. And I think, obviously, for the people listening in this audience, I think the answer to those questions uh, are obvious. So, Kirby, thank you very much for the question. That is a good one. Hey, we're almost at the end of the first half of our program. We would love to have you kick off this second half with your calls and questions. I want to remind you tonight, our Sweet Summer Devotion, this is the next to last one. Sarah Doyle tonight and Yoli Vega will be next week. We have 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our monday program 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR i got a message paula i said i love you but now i'm I've been instructed to tell you that I love you more than a hot fudge Sunday. I was laughing because yesterday in church, we were talking about love. We're in the love chapter. We just touched on it, just the first three verses in our study yesterday, and we'll continue on it next week. Uh, but uh, I, we're talking about love. One of the problems with our English language is that we have one word for love. It's love. And we say things like, and I, the example I give, Paula, I love you. And Paula knows I love her. That's great. But then we might be in the car driving by a Dairy Queen or something. And I say, Paula, I love Hot Fudge Sundays. And, and there's no distinction. In contrast, the Greek language, the language of our New Testament, has four separate words for love. And they all have different meanings. And it's easy to get to the depth. And, of course, we're talking about the love of God the, the kind of love that's impossible apart from from having a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the kind of love that 1 Corinthians 13 talks about. Here is our first question of this half. Vince says, do, Pastor Ron, do you recommend the Episcopal Church, especially for new believers? Um, Vince, no, no, no. A thousand times no. I don't recommend the Episcopal Church at all. The Episcopal Church long ago threw away the Bible, uh, that does not mean there aren't uh, Episcopalians who are saved, because we know there are. But the church as a whole has thrown away the Bible. They have become very liberal, and I don't mean liberal politically. I mean liberal in terms of their view of Scripture. They have a very low view of Scripture, and, and frankly, they have just rendered Scripture useless. So uh, the Episcopal Church, especially for a new believer, would be the last thing I would recommend. Vince, we need to be in churches where the Bible is being taught, where we're being equipped for the work of ministry. And that can't happen unless you're in a church that is teaching, not preaching, teaching the Bible. The Spirit of God working through the Word of God equips us and empowers us to do the work. And sadly, the Episcopal Church, along with much of their European counterpart, the Anglican Church, and we've got Anglican churches here as well, um, um, unfortunately, they've decided that the Bible is just sort of a book of stories that really doesn't have a lot of value for the day and age that we live in. And of course, Vince, we know just the opposite is true. So stay away from the Episcopal Church. Sadly, the mainline denominations 
um, that have been around for a very, very long time have lost their way, and and uh, we would not want to expose people to them. Once again, for the sake of clarity, that does not mean that some who are Episcopalians are not saved. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that you really can't live a thriving Christian life apart from really trusting in and obeying the word of God. Here's our next question from Charles. He says, balancing science and creation has always caused difficulty for Christians. Why didn't God give us proof that he created the world? Um, uh, Charles, uh, you you know, I I really don't understand this question. Um, uh, I mean, I don't know what more proof we need. The first four words of the Bible says, in the beginning, God. God is the only one that was there. And you're trying to balance science that that automatically disqualifies the existence of God and giving them some sort of credibility. Now, I understand unbelievers falling into that trap. We were raised, brainwashed, really, to, to believe that evolution was true, that the earth is millions, if not billions of years old. Uh, that's not what our Bibles tell us. So I just don't think this creates any difficulty for Christians at all. I think we've got to decide, do we believe in the beginning God or don't we? And then God gave us even more proof. He became a man. Charles, historically, God became a man. We know him as Jesus of Nazareth. Now, lots of people have said they're God, but he actually proved it that Jesus really and truly, literally lived is beyond any question. That he was murdered on a cross is also demonstrably beyond any question. There's no honest person who could deny that Jesus really lived and he really died on a cross. Third, we have equal evidence that he didn't stay dead, that he's alive. Now, all of that says, I'm the one who created all these things. God was the only one who was there when he said, let there be light, and there was light. God was the only one that was there when he made everything that we see from nothing. We're told in our New Testament that that not only did Jesus make everything, and there's nothing that has been made that wasn't made by him, we're also told that he holds all things together. And to me, Charles, that's pretty compelling proof. I, 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 I get this kind of question. Well, if God loves me, why doesn't he prove it to me? He died on the cross for you. How much more proof do you need? If you need proof that God created a world, a world that is made with this magnificent order, a world that you can't help but to look at every day and see the hand of God. I I see God's creation. I see the evidence every morning when I look at the eastern sky. And when I'm saying these things, I mean, these are things I really do. The first place I look when I walk out my door in the morning is the eastern sky. I see the sun. Now, today, of course, there was no sun, but I, 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 I know the sun's there. I know it's hiding there. And I always look at that as Jesus... Sometimes I can't feel you, or I can't see you, but I know you're there. I know by faith. Well, that's the way it is. And that eastern sky is in the same place every morning when we can see these beautiful Texas sunsets. It happens in the same place in the western sky. I mean, the order is undeniable. And Charles, all you got to do is believe it. Just believe it, based on the evidence. We also, I think, need to remember, Charles, that when we get these scientific perspectives, that there's an agenda attached to them. If a scientist is trying to disprove that God is real, they start out with that premise which renders all the conclusions they arrive at useless. Science should have no agenda. Let the facts fall where they may. 
And that's the problem we're having. You know, we're we're hearing about science all the time now. Just follow the science. We follow the science with regard to COVID, with regard to vaccines, with regard to everything. We follow the science. Those are the same people that alter the science when it benefits them. For example, when a man says, I feel like a woman, or a woman says, I feel like a man. Wait a minute. Let's go to the science. Science doesn't lie. The science says you've got male chromosomes or female chromosomes. And yet, oh, well, that, that doesn't matter. It's not that science we're interested in. You don't get to pick and choose. So, Charles, don't be embarrassed. Don't be overwhelmed by people who think they're smart, professing themselves wise they became fools, the Bible says. You've got to decide whether or not the first four words in the Bible are true or not. And if those first four words aren't true or you're not sure they're true, then you need to examine your heart before God because you're not saved if that's the case. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Gerald says, Pastor Ron, how can we balance God's sovereignty and man's free will? Um, Gerald, this only creates a problem for people who think that God's sovereignty is causative. By that I mean um, the the guys that are really strong on the sovereignty of God, you know, they they typically believe that God causes everything. God caused Judas to 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 uh, betray Jesus. No, God didn't cause it. God just knew he was going to do it. Um, so God's sovereignty is never in question. And at least from my perspective, Gerald, there's no tension at all between God's sovereignty and man's free will. We know that God gives everyone the right to choose. If God refused the right to choose then God would not be a loving father. He would be an unloving dictator. He would be the grand puppet master. But he gives us the right to choose, and his sovereignty is never uh, demonstrated with more power than taking the, the choices we make that rebel against God and turning that all into a plan that accomplishes the will that he always wanted to accomplish. You know, we look at Romans 8.28, it's just a Bible verse. It's so much more than that. And we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's what God's sovereignty. Imagine somebody who hates God. I'll give you an example just because I'm, I'm in the book of Daniel. Um, in chapter 5 of Daniel's book, um, um, the, the Medes and the Persians under Cyrus, uh, they come and destroy, they, they, they take over the, the city of Babylon and they replace the Babylonians as the, the, the empire in the world. Um, God knew they were going to do that. And in fact, Isaiah, the prophet, more than a hundred years before Cyrus was born, prophesied calling Cyrus by name that that was what was going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. So no tension between God's sovereignty and man's free will. We choose, God knows the choice we're going to make, and I like to use the example of a Rubik's Cube. We make the wrong choice. Our Rubik's Cube is, cube is really messy. And God just kind of and fixes it all together and it's perfect again. Now the blessing for us, Gerald, is that when God's sovereignty is working in spite of our rebellion, it means that we always have the opportunity to choose to get right back in the middle of God's perfect will. So I hope that makes sense to you. No tension at all. I was laughing at myself doing the Rubik's Cube. I can't do the noise good, but the noise that it makes when you do it. I was talking about toys in the study, not yesterday, but, but the week before. And I, I was sharing with church growing up. I wasn't much of a toy person. I was playing ball or something. 
But uh, there were some toys like, and one of them I said was a slinky. I could sit there with a slinky and play for hours and hours and hours just because the way it feels in your hands. It just, it's almost hypnotic. And uh, yesterday, a uh, dear brother in the church brought me a slinky. I haven't had a slinky in a long, long time, but I've got a slinky in my office now. So, dear brother, thank you for that. I appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to Thomas on line one from San Antonio. Thomas, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Sir, I just have to ask you a question. Uh, it's about baptism. Okay. And I was baptized. I was baptized. I believe I was baptized. I, it's vaguely in my mind, long, long time ago as a child. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if I got rebaptized to where I can remember it as an adult. Uh, is anything wrong with that? Yeah, no, nothing at all, Thomas. Uh, uh, interestingly, we are having our summer baptism this coming Sunday uh, here at Calvary Chapel, where we've got somebody's a house out in the country and pool. We're gonna we're gonna have a lot of people out there, and uh, I feel like baptism for uh, people who are baptized as infants or baptized into a cultic church or baptized. Uh, as young kids, you know, and really didn't understand what they're doing. When we go and, and, and re-baptize, we're, we're simply making a public profession of faith that now, as an adult of my own free will, I'm making this choice to belong to Jesus. And Thomas, I think it's a wonderful idea, and I would uh, I would endorse you doing that wholeheartedly, and I think you will be blessed, and I know Jesus will. Does that help? Fantastic. Thank you very much. Good. Good for you, Thomas. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, we are are going to be baptizing. Um, uh, we it's been with COVID and stuff. We weren't able to do it last summer, uh, but we like to have one big event, uh, and we do other baptisms throughout the course of the year. But but we like to do one big event because we want it to be memorable. And you could hear Thomas's heart. He just wants this to be a moment where he's saying to the whole world, Jesus, I belong to you. That's a wonderful, wonderful sentiment, and God will honor it. Um, I get asked all the time, uh, do I have to be rebaptized? Uh, baptism is a choice to be obedient. But if you've been baptized as an infant or you were baptized as a child and really didn't understand what it was all about, um, it's not a question of have to. It's a question of get to. And uh, believe me, it will be a wonderful, wonderful blessing. We should be baptized, all of us, not to get saved, but because we are saved. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. our toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Paul. He said, when the Holy Spirit is removed from the earth, will compassion and kindness still be on the earth? Paul, um, um, uh, the, 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 the big answer is no, but the little answer is, well, there will still be some ca- compassionate people because in the Great Tribulation that follows the Holy Spirit being removed, and, and when it says the Holy Spirit, the restrainer being removed, it's when the church is taken away the restraining work done by the church uh, for the glory of God will cease because we'll be gone. It's like uh, there's light on the earth in, in the middle. We live in a very dark world, but there's some light now on the earth. And, and when that light goes away, then it becomes totally dark. And that's exactly what will happen. However, and this is the good news, Paul, the greatest revival in the history of the world will occur in the seven years we call the Great Tribulation. We're gone. The Holy Spirit's still going to be saving people. It's just that his restraining power is removed when the church goes to heaven. But the church is going to be um, um, reestablished. Not reestablished because most Christians are going to die, but, but that light is going to come back in the world as people who are lost in that darkness get saved. And we're talking... Um, multiplied millions of people, the, the greatest revival in the history of the world, led, of course, by the two witnesses in Jerusalem for the first three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, and then the 144,000 uh, Jewish evangelists uh, who are protected by God and given supernatural power. Uh, I always like to imagine 144,000 Apostle Pauls running around 
Only they can't be hurt. They can't be killed like the Apostle Paul could. So uh, when people get saved, they still belong to Christ and there will be uh, kindness and compassion again on the earth. The problem is that the rest of the world is going to be so dark that they won't recognize the kindness and compassion. So, uh, yeah, the Holy Spirit's going to take the church. And it doesn't seem like the church is very effective right now at restraining uh, evil. Um, But we can only imagine how dark this world would be without the church of Jesus Christ here uh, being salt and light. Jesus said we're to be salt and light. Salt was used as a preservative in the ancient world. And light, of course, shows the way in darkness. It's going to be really, really dark. But as people get saved, be just like little tiny bits of light that people will be accountable to respond to. Good question, Paul. You know, I was thinking, I had a question uh, last week about the earth turning dark uh, when Jesus um, uh, was uh, uh, crucified. And uh, we had a guest, a speaker, a friend of mine here uh, this past Friday night, uh, Jim Lawrence from Calvary Chapel in Norman, Oklahoma. And he did a message. You can go to our website and listen to it. It's a really great message on light. Um, Jesus being the source of light. There's no light apart from him. You know, the world had light before the sun and the moon and the stars were created by God. And people say, well, see, that proves the Bible's wrong. Where did the light come from if the sun hadn't even been created yet? Well, that light was Christ. And that's the same light, the source light, he said. That's the same light that we will have when there is no longer a need in the new heaven and the new earth for the sun and the moon and the stars. Because Jesus will be that light. And it will never be extinguished ever, ever again. Great question. Thank you very, very much. Got time for a couple more questions, I think. Devin wants to know, is the sinner's prayer biblical? Should we always try to close the deal, so to speak? Um, Devin, yeah, you know, I grew up a salesman as a young adult salesman and a car dealer. And we're always trying to close the deal. I think as Christians... Uh, we ought to try to close the deal. We want to ask people, are you ready to accept Jesus Christ? Now, if they say no, they don't want to hear it, you stop talking. But I think as we share Jesus, we need to ask people to make a decision. The Holy Spirit will use that if they refuse to make a decision because he's going to keep chasing them. Now, the sinner's prayer is not biblical in the sense that you don't find it in the Bible. But there's nothing about what we call the sinner's prayer that is unbiblical at all. All we're doing is giving people the opportunity to uh, receive Jesus Christ. And, and when, when new believers are reborn, um, you know, we, we, um, they don't know how to pray. Um, and, you know, I've asked people, are you ready to ask Jesus in your heart? They say, yeah, but I don't know what to do. Well, the sinner's prayer is a good roadmap. For that, So there's nothing wrong with the sinner's prayer at all. You can't find it in the Bible, but there's no principle that it violates. So, yes, we should always ask people if they're ready. After you share Jesus, we can ask them, does that sound good? No, most of the time we're going to know by their reaction. But it's a wonderful opportunity when they say, well, yeah, I, I think I believe that. Well, then let's right now ask Jesus into your heart. And since they don't do, we just say, okay, just repeat after me. So I think it's it's biblical in concept and in practice. It just can't be found in uh, chapter and verse in our New Testament. Um, anonymous, this is the last question I'll get to today. Uh, I've listened to your last three sermons on spiritual gifts and serving. I'm in a season of waiting on the Lord right now. Don't you think that's a legitimate place for some people? Now, he's responding to the fact that I said every person ought to be serving in church using our spiritual gifts. Uh, Church is not a place for spectators. I was very direct and very specific. Um, And um, I hear all the time people say, well, you know, I'm just waiting on the Lord right now. We don't get to wait. Jesus is coming soon. Paul said that we're to redeem the time, making the most of every opportunity. We, we, when we say, I'm in a season of waiting right now, what that means is we're being spiritually lazy. Now, Anonymous, I don't know who you are, and I don't want you to take that personal. 
But here's what I do want you to do. I want you to say, Lord, if I'm yours, and if you want me to be a blessing to others who are yours, well, then how can I be sitting still? How can I be doing nothing? I really think that is a spiritual-sounding panacea that that sort of justifies us really not wanting to do anything to get involved. I'll say it again. Every single Christian ought to be serving in a local church. Every single one. We have three services on Sunday. We have a Friday night service, a fourth weekend service. Um, we ought to go and listen to the Word be taught. And then we ought to spend another service, or, or even two, in our case, uh, serving other people. If we're going to give the day to God, we realize that we're servants, not volunteers, then how can we say to him, well, I'm just in a, a season of waiting on the Lord. I think if you would tune in real carefully to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in your heart, he'd be saying, get up. Get up and serve somebody. That's the way the gifts of the Spirit flow through you. That's the way the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Nobody is endued with power from heaven if we're just sitting still. One other comment, and I'm running out of time, Anonymous. Um, The enemy is just waiting for Christians who are doing nothing. He's prowling around, waiting for that opportunity. And if you're doing nothing, believe me, he's got his sights set on you because you become a stationary target for him. We need to be serving. We need to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Holy Spirit is to be a blessing to serve other people. So, hope that answers your question. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Remember, tonight at 7, our Sweet Summer Devotion series is almost over. Two more Monday nights. This is the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.